0: Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina knows the value of giving pets the absolute best. That's why they only use trustworthy ingredient sources in their pet foods, and every ingredient in their products has a purpose. Learn more at purina.com/cares.
1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
2: Hello, hey you. Here's Louisa Beck from the Washington Post. Hi,
3: this
1: is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori, Artani over at the Post. I'm This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis and from Martin Powers. It's Friday, August 7th. Today, how the pandemic could accelerate gentrification, the problem with the lack of representation on TV, and the rise of anti-racist reading.
3: So we know that the coronavirus pandemic has really hit black and brown communities the hardest. They're both the most likely to contract coronavirus and die from it. And so the next natural question is to look at the economic impacts. How are African-American, Asian-American, and Latinos faring economically amid all of this, amid the coronavirus recession? We know from unemployment data that the three groups are the most likely to be unemployed since the pandemic started. And that's because they're also the most likely to work in industries that have been the hardest hit, such as hospitality, you know, restaurants, hotels, tourism. I am Tracy Jan and I write about race and the economy at the Washington Post. I wanted to know how does the economic impact affect a historic minority enclave like Chinatown, like Boyle Heights in Los Angeles, like South LA, formerly known as South Central. And what's been happening, especially in Chinatown and in Boyle Heights, is uh, there's already been a fair amount of gentrification over the years, especially since the Great Recession. And what's happening in Los Angeles is not unique. It's happening in Houston, it's happening
1: in New York, it's happening in
3: a bunch of American cities.
1: Yeah, and I imagine that this isn't just unique to L.A., that there are ethnic enclaves around the country that are also dealing with the consequences of the coronavirus. What are some of the other places that you're seeing this happen?
3: So I focus on L.A. because it's one of the largest, most diverse cities in America, but there is similar issues popping up across America. And a lot of these ethnic neighborhoods have been confronting gentrification. In recent years, I spoke with Nico Avina, who's a business owner in Boyle Heights, a Latino enclave in Los Angeles. And Nico Avina and his wife had a store that existed prior to the Great Recession that they ended up having to close as a result of the economic fallout of the recession. And so they're afraid that the same thing will happen to this second incarnation of their store, which is also kind of like a cultural slash community space. The community is concerned about gentrification, both in terms of residents being pushed out who can no longer afford rents, but also business owners being pushed out.
2: The one thing that is very clear for us is is that we're against the gentrification of our community.
3: And he just doesn't want to let his community down again by having to close this space that so many people have come to rely on. I'm curious to hear how the Paycheck
1: Protection Program plays into this.
3: The inspector general of the Small Business Administration has actually issued a report dinging the agency for failing to follow the congressional guidelines, which were supposed to prioritize minority owned businesses. Regional analysis done by a UCLA economist has shown that the three neighborhoods that we focus on in the story, Boyle Heights, Chinatown, Limerick Park in South LA, those neighborhoods are getting disproportionately fewer loans than neighborhoods in three other commercial areas in Los Angeles that are predominantly white.
2: What they offer you is a loan, something you have to pay back. And so for us, that's not the direction that we want to go. Like we don't want to fall further into debt in the middle of a pandemic.
4: However,
3: minority owned businesses are just less likely to access that type of government support for several reasons. A lot of them are not tied to the big banks, which make it a lot easier to access those loans. Some of them simply don't want to take out more loans that they know they won't be able to afford to pay back.
2: You know, as soon as you hear loan, for me, that's a turnoff. It means something that you have to pay back. And that's further putting you in a situation where where that's not creating self-sustainability if you have to depend or pay someone back.
3: Even though the loans could become grants if they meet certain criteria. If the money is used for certain things like maintaining payroll. Some of the business owners I talked to did access the grants. They said it will help them in addition to, you know, relying on takeout or switching their business to online. But some of these business owners are just really small and you know sometimes there are language barriers and the application process is complicated. So it's hard to navigate without someone guiding them.
2: I do have a friend who Who decided to get the loan and he was telling me it's a small percentage, but I'm still like, it's still a percentage.
3: If there is a way to make it easier for them to access and have it be grants, they would certainly welcome that. The problems that the coronavirus is highlighting are systemic issues that have been happening in America for a very long time, since the beginning of our country's history. So... The coronavirus has only served to cast a spotlight on those very real issues of systemic racism. And this is just one of them.
1: Tracy Jan reports on race and the economy for The Post.
5: I want to do it the right way, man. I'm not going to look at porn, nothing. I just want to commit. No porn this my case. God. There's no porn. It's going to be tough. No way. Impossible.
2: Rami.
6: Rami is a show on Hulu about a Muslim guy who makes a bunch of human mistakes while he's trying to get closer to God. And along the way, he's trying to understand what faith means to him.
0: I just want to figure out my calling.
5: Brother Rami, that's what brings you here. I want to change and I heard you can help me.
6: Brahmi is definitely a different kind of show from Muslims that have previously been on TV. It didn't show the typical stereotypes that we see, Typically, you have stereotypes like a Muslim terrorist or a taxi driver or a restaurant owner. Like You see this nuanced character who is trying to run towards faith rather than away from it.
1: This is Hira Qureshi. She's a freelance journalist based in Memphis, and she's talking about the comedy show Rami that's streaming on Hulu. It was created by and stars comedian Rami Youssef, and it was just nominated for three Emmys, including Best Actor in a Comedy for Yusuf himself. It's a groundbreaking show about a Muslim American trying to navigate the role of faith in his life, but it also sparked some controversy within the Muslim community. Kira discussed the show with Post Reports producer Lena Muhammad.
4: So this show is really popular and it's critically acclaimed, but... There's been a lot of controversy around the show's takes on some really taboo topics in the Muslim community, like sex, drugs, alcohol, infidelity, basically all the haram things. Right. So these
6: controversies started this conversation within the Muslim community they're taboo topics for a reason. And unless someone kind of brings it to the table, no one's going to talk about it. And so there was a lot of dialogue within the Muslim community with friends and families. And then again, with Muslim Twitter, just talking about what they liked about the show, what they didn't like, what they wanted to see different and how they wanted maybe, you know, some changes to the next season. And it really opened up that door of conversation.
4: Yeah. And sometimes the show forces conversations within one's own family. I mean, I know For me, I watched some of the second season with my parents and it definitely got us talking about what is okay and what's not okay and what Islam means to each and every one of them in ways that we never addressed before.
6: Right. And I even had discussions with my own family. So two of my cousins, we did a Zoom call, Ashid and Fatma. Ashad lives in Pakistan, overseas, and Fatma lives in California. And then I live in Memphis, Tennessee in the south. We're in different areas and we watch this one show and we can connect on it in different levels. And we have three very different perspectives and very different Muslim experiences. I found like how like my Muslim experience in America was so much different than his. I mean, granted, I live on like the West Coast in California and like the Bay Area and it's like, you know, different, like diversity wise and stuff like that. And so I think for me, it highlighted like even within America, how different my experience was. So, Fathma lives in California, and she's always been very secure in her identity as a Muslim, but for me, living in the South, my experience has been very different. I've struggled with it. And then Ashid, who lives in Pakistan, which is a Muslim-majority country, also has a very different experience from American Muslims.
2: I'm actually uh, like gaining a newfound appreciation for this show. Yeah? In what way? Yeah. In uh, the fact that there's not a lot of shows having Muslims in them, or having mainly a Muslim cast, but then never uh, talk about uh, the Muslim experience growing up in a particular area, and how that affects you. And the world is changing. A lot of people are more accepting about a, a lot of things now. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of Muslims drink now. A lot of Muslims are, uh, you know, doing drugs and stuff like that, but that's not talked about. Yeah, and I love the fact that he just brought it uh, in front of everyone and like, let's talk about this.
6: And so talking about these things we were able to have these honest conversations within our own family and understand how we see the
4: world and how we see our own experiences. But while the show fostered this safe space for us to have these uncomfortable conversations, it also got a lot of criticism and pushback from within the community because of what we just talked about. I mean, the fact that it has Rami as this hypersexual character is just one of many criticisms the show has received.
6: What are you doing?
5: I was just
6: Are you is that the condom that we just used?
5: Yeah, I was just, you know. Cleaning it or I was just checking if there was any holes in it. You know, like Why would
6: there be a hole?
5: You ever see the way they ship these things? It's like on a truck, there's like a bunch of dudes, and they're like, who are those dudes? Like I don't know them, you don't know you know, so this just just to make sure that there isn't a faulty one. And you anything. do this
6: like every time we have sex?
5: Yeah, I mean it just it just takes a sec.
6: I don't know why, but I feel, like, kind of offended.
5: There's nothing to worry about. It's just its just so that we don't have to worry. Even
6: if, like, something crazy happened, you know I'm on the pill. Right? And if the pill didn't work, we'd
7: do the responsible thing and, like, take care of it.
5: I mean, look, i am I'm, I'm totally pro-women getting to choose what to do with their bodies. I am. But I'm Muslim, so I'm just pro-us not having to make that choice.
6: No, like, you're Muslim, I thought, in the way that I'm Jewish. Like, it's a cultural thing. I didn't know that you were Muslim.
4: Muslim. Yeah. And it's part of this conversation about what it means to have a Muslim on screen and what that Muslim should look and sound like.
5: I, I can't have sex. Today's the first day of Ramadan, so we can't eat or drink or have sex from sunrise to sunset.
7: So, what? You can only f at night?
5: I actually can't at all. I mean, I'm never really supposed to, unless I'm, you know, married to the person. But, um, you know, obviously I, I do. But this month I I try to be, you know, I try to get rid of all distractions.
4: This is something that Rami Youssef, he's the creator of the show, and he's also the main character on it, has addressed. Before the premiere of, of season two on Hulu, he went onto social media and he had this entire note sort of like explaining the problem with representation.
6: Right. So I actually reached out to him because of his note. Uh, I saw your um, note to your fans on social media and I thought that would be an interesting thing to talk about.
8: So yeah would have what what, is, what were your thoughts
6: <laughs> and he wanted to kind of just clarify his perspective on the show
8: i do think that the audience is in an unfair position there's not a lot of content to choose from that isn't otherizing that speaks to you know, a part of the experience from within the community, and certainly, I would say for you know the generation I grew up in, it's like we had Aladdin, you know, like <laughs> like we had we had it's like or that or just like the news and terrorism and. And whatnot,
6: and the fact that there's a lot of weight that comes on a show that's the only representation available for the Muslim community right now.
8: I think that a show like mine, uh, the way it ends up being positioned is it's just called The Muslim Show. And so it, it kind of does this thing that, you know, it, like I said, it's unfair. It's unfair to the viewer um, to, to feel like this is the only choice. Um, and I think for me, in the, in the position that I'm in... Um, it's really important for me to not operate from thinking that it's going to be the only choice that people have, because then, you know, I have to make something um, kind of like by democracy where it's like, well, let me make something that like, you know, fits as, as many people as possible and covers everything. Cause this is our only shot. Uh, that's a really bad way to make something.
4: And I get that, but I still think that it can be problematic at times. I mean, just the way that the Muslim women were portrayed in the show, I mean, we didn't see a lot of depth to their characters, especially in season one.
5: You could move out. Okay, you're choosing to stay there. Guys, my parents
6: are not going to let me move out before I'm married. I can't f- until I'm married. So really, I'm just f- until I'm married.
4: As a Muslim woman viewer, both watching season one and season two... That is something that I definitely took issue with. I just found myself asking, why can't the hijab-wearing character be stronger? Or why is the mom's character on
1: the weaker side? Rami, Habibi, where are you? Uh, We're
5: still watching the game.
1: You said you're coming half an hour ago. Habibi, your father is coming home
5: soon. I have to go to the market. We don't even have milk. Mom, it's overtime. Look, I can't control that, all right? I'm going to call you a car. You love these apps with cars. I told you, I don't know who they are. Mom, it's safe, all right? Let me just call you on because I'm going to... Oh, What? Look, Mom, I got to watch this game. I got to Look, there's going to be a blue Camry outside in two minutes, okay? I just called it. He's going to take you to the store and then I'll pick you up.
6: Yanni, you gave them our address? Definitely one big criticism that he got was uh, about the Muslim women in his show. He has these really deep male characters and the women just seem to be really flat compared to them. And so it almost seems like the women in a show are props for these men's stories and make the men's stories better. Which can kind of be seen as a reflection as to how Muslim men in the community see the women in their lives, which is kind of a sad thing to think about. And I think that it's definitely valid criticism because it is a show created by a Muslim guy and there's a perspective that comes with that on Muslim women. And I think that what you see on the show, although he has these characters of his mom and his sister, and I think that people related to them in some way. I definitely saw some things in his sister and I could see my mom in some ways in his mom, but I think that it wasn't enough.
4: Yeah, but like, as I was watching, I couldn't help but see the show through non-Muslim eyes, if I may say that. And I kept asking myself, like, oh, my God, what are people going to think when they see this? Oh, my God, are they going to think that we're all like this and we're not all like this? And I just feel very torn about it because like, yes, Rami is a show about one guy's experience, but at the same time, it is one of the only shows that we have right now. So there's still that
6: burden. Right. And I think that's what happens when you have so few shows about the Muslim experience. The audience is going to put a lot of weight on this one particular show. It's the only representation we have, so we think it's the only shot we're going to get. So everything has to be perfect. Every experience that he depicts on the show has to be perfect. And that's what Rami's intent was when he sent out the note. It was to address that exactly, that there is a weight that's put on the show
8: You know, I just, I really enjoy the discourse around it and I make this show truly for like conversations that I think are hard to have without the context of comedy and hard to have without something like this to open them up in some way. And so, I I know a lot of the things are uncomfortable but the intention is never to be sensational and the intention is never to be disrespectful and, and I think that any shortcomings that, like, anything that's ever made has, you know, those are always going to be there on, you know, anything. He mentioned
6: he wanted to see more representation out there.
8: Firsts aren't as interesting to me as, like, thirds and fourths. Like, I want to see, you know, places, you know, give... There needs to be a show around the Muslim woman, you know, like like I mentioned in, in, the, in the note. Like, there needs to be a story about Black Muslims. There needs to be, like, there's so many things that need to be told that really deserve... Their own 20, 30 episodes because uh, they're really meaty subjects.
1: Hira Qureshi is a freelance journalist. Lena Muhammad is a producer for Post Reports. The show Rami was recently renewed for a third season. now, one more thing from graphics reporter Brittany Renee Mays. Since the killing of George Floyd, people have gone back
0: to the streets to protest police brutality against Black victims. But this time, they've also flooded Black-owned bookstores, asking for anti-racist and social justice literature. I talked to a bunch of Black bookstore owners, and all of them have told me that their sales have gone through the roof for a bunch of titles.
7: Yeah, sales have increased. I mean, we've probably sold more books in the last month than we sold our entire first year in
0: business. Jazzy McGilbert is the owner of Reparations Club in Los Angeles.
7: The breadth of orders has been anti-racist titles, but I've also seen like a huge interest in all of the other books that we carry and
0: have carried for a long time. When I talked to these bookstore owners, so many of them told me that they were overwhelmed with the spike in demand, as were libraries, and even publishers had to reprint a lot of these titles. You know,
7: one week, I'm trying to just figure out how to keep the doors open. And quite literally,
0: a few days later, trying to figure out how to hire more people to help fulfill orders. So we're seeing books like How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi on bestsellers list. And Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad is gaining a new audience. Older books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time have also picked up steam. And so have books by white authors like White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. The other thing is that readers seem to be putting more of an effort to buy from these Black-owned businesses, trying to put money towards causes that they care about.
7: Diversifying your dollar can
0: always be an act of protest and support. But while owners are excited about these jump in sales, they also see reason to be skeptical.
7: I'm careful to over-acknowledge people just reading books by black people. I don't think it's I don't think it should be a revolutionary act. I think it's something people should have been doing for a long time. It's bittersweet that it took black death and black trauma to get to this point.
0: And they just don't know how long people will stay interested in anti racist and black literature once the protests end. But this is still a really interesting moment since we didn't see the same kind of engagement with social justice literature after the killings of Trayvon Martin in 2012 or Eric Garner, Michael Brown and Tamir Rice in 2014. Ultimately, though, it'll be important to see a longer running commitment to black owned businesses. It's been hard to make any business decisions around this influx because you don't know how long anti-racism
7: is going to be trending, for lack of a better word. Uh, So, yeah, so I applaud people for taking that step. And I just hope it continues.
1: Brittany Renee Mays is a graphics reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rina Flores, Lena Mohamed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renee Fronowski, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.